The views, opinions, and content of the show hosts and their guests appearing on America's Web Radio are their own and do not necessarily reflect those of the station. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Welcome to America's Web Radio. This is Ron Bachman, and you're listening to Healthcare Insight. Well, we just passed Christmas last week. Now, if you've got little children out there, you probably enjoyed one of the most pleasant Christmases of having toys that you can play with as adults. If your children are little, then you probably had some great first Christmases or first awareness Christmases. But the reason we celebrate Christmas, of course, is the birth of Jesus Christ. So we have faith that Jesus is real, that Jesus was born. And the important thing to know is that while the birth of Jesus is absolutely critical to start the whole process, the real foundation and the real incident that established the Christian church was the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Because anybody can be born and make some claim that they are godly feet humans, that they came from God, that they are God. But only in the resurrection, ultimately, is the proof that Jesus came to earth as human. God came to earth as human form. So the real issue is, where is the faith? Is the faith just in Christmas and in the joy of Christmas and in the attitude of forgiveness and acceptance of others? Or is faith the critical part to being a Christian. Well, in this hour, I want to talk about how you don't need faith. Faith is not necessary in this day and age. We've gone beyond faith in this world of scientific discoveries. You no longer need to have faith because science is on your side if you believe that Jesus Christ is your Lord and Savior. But in order to proceed along that path of accepting Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, the important thing first is to accept that there is a God. Because if there's a God first, then you can draw the next conclusion that he came to earth to save humanity from its sins, to give forgiveness for all those past sins, to help the world to be better established in basic principles and morality, and to honor him throughout their lives. That is the purpose of what we all have as Christians, is to be able to honor and glorify God. So let's start with that premise first. Does God exist? And do we need faith to believe that God exists? Well, my response to that is no, because there is a great philosopher, theologian, scientist, Dr. William Lane Craig, who gives us all the scientific arguments, not just accept your faith by just believing, but in fact, there are arguments for why God exists, why Jesus is the Son of God that came to earth, and there is scientific, historical, observable facts that support this whole conclusion. So you no longer need faith. So listen to this program throughout this entirety, and you will hear the arguments that you can reinforce your own if you have just a faith without a real knowledge, or you can have the kinds of arguments if you're talking to other family members or friends that you 
can explain to them why the most logical answer, the most reasonable approach to that core question that humans have, does God exist, is Jesus Christ the Son of God, you will have those answers if you listen carefully throughout this next hour. So let me start off with Dr. Craig and ask him about this idea of using philosophy as well as his faith-based understandings of the Bible and Christianity to try to bring people uh, to faith. So, Dr. Craig, tell us about this idea of uh, philosophy in approaching uh, the proof that God does exist. You see, the question of God's existence is of interest not only to religion, but also to philosophy. Therefore, as a professional philosopher, I'm going to approach tonight's question philosophically from the standpoint of reason and argument. I'm convinced that there are better arguments for theism than for atheism. I'm going to defend two basic contentions. First, that there's no good argument that atheism is true. And secondly, that there are good arguments that theism is true. Okay, Dr. Craig, so it sounds like what you're going to do is try to approach the question of does God exist from a logical, deductive point of view. In other words, you're going to set up some hypothesis that I presume we're going to hear about, and then that is going to naturally lead to uh, the argument, uh, the conclusion that God exists. And then if you do the same um, uh, demonstration, the same basic principles and you apply that to um, atheism, that that doesn't uh, conclude anything that anyone could say that God doesn't exist or that God is dead. So tell us again a little bit more about what you are sort of leaving off the table in that sort of presentation, because when we get into religion, there's a lot of things people can argue about, even within uh, the uh, dominion of faith, because there's so many denominations that might have some different interpretations. So tell us in this audience what you're not going to try to do so that we can get and pare this down to the core of your arguments. Now, notice carefully the circumscribed limits of those contentions. We're not here to debate the social impact of religion, or Old Testament ethics, uh, or biblical inerrancy. All interesting and important topics, no doubt, but not the subject of tonight's debate, which is the existence of God. Okay, doctor, let's go back to your two contentions, then, that you're going to try to prove. The first is that atheism is not true. Can you give us some details as to why you would make that claim that atheism is not true as you try to ultimately argue that God exists? Consider then my first contention, that there's no good argument that atheism is true. Atheists have tried for centuries to disprove the existence of God, but no one's ever been able to come up with a successful argument. says, I simply don't have any positive reason to believe in God, but he doesn't really give an argument against God's existence. Indeed, he seems to suggest that's impossible. But notice that doesn't prove atheism. That just leaves you with agnosticism, namely, you don't know if there's a God or not. So at best, you're left merely with agnosticism. We don't see any good reason to think that atheism is true. 
So, doctors, I understand your point. The typical atheist does not really try to prove that God is dead or doesn't exist. He just says that he doesn't know and can't prove the lack of a God, so he doesn't believe. Now, one of the other arguments that atheists typically use is the process of evolution, the Darwinian uh, discoveries of the evolution of man. And many believe that that's in conflict with religious beliefs. Can you try to address the idea of evolution and how, from a philosophical and a scientific standpoint, it really can tie into uh, one's faith and belief that there is, in fact, a God and that God does exist. About the theory of evolution, which at least insinuated that this was somehow incompatible with theism. And I have two points to make about this. First, I think that the theory of biological evolution is simply irrelevant to the truth of Christian theism. Uh, Genesis 1 admits all manner of different interpretations, and one is by no means committed to six-day creationism. Howard Van Til, who is a professor at Calvin College, writes, Is the concept of special creation required of all persons who trust in the creator God of Scripture? Most Christians in my acquaintance who are engaged with either scientific or biblical scholarship have concluded that the special creationist picture of the world's formation is not a necessary component of Christian belief. So, Doctor, for some in the audience who believe in the literal translation of the Bible, what you're saying and trying to put out here is that to be a Christian, you don't have to have a literal translation of the Bible to hold your belief that a God exists, that theism is the answer, not atheism, uh, in understanding that there is a divine um, uh, creator of the universe. Uh, can you tell us a little bit more about other thinkers in the past? Maybe other theologians who agree with your position on that so that that doesn't become um, a barrier that people can't get over, that we wind up arguing about the literal translation of the Bible and forget the idea here is to prove that the existence of God is the only possible answer uh, to many of uh, the discussions and arguments that you're making. Because some might argue that that position is sort of a retreat from the traditional or long-standing uh, Christian belief in the literal interpretation of the Bible, but because Darwin developed some other theory that is widely accepted, that Christians or theologians just begin to accept that and factor it in after the fact. So is it a retreat from the basic uh, belief that was long-standing in the Christian religion? Nor is this a retreat caused by modern science. St. Augustine, in the A.D. 300s, in his commentary on Genesis, pointed out that the days don't need to be taken literally, nor need the creation be a few thousand years ago. Indeed, he suggested that God made the world with certain special potencies that would gradually unfold over time and develop. This interpretation came 1,500 years before Darwin, so that it is not a forced retreat in the face of modern science. So any doubts that I would have about the theory of biological evolution would be not biblical, but rather scientific. Namely, what it imagines is fantastically 
improbable. And they calculate the probability of the evolution of the human genome between to be somewhere between 4 to the negative 180th power to the 110,000th power and 4 to the negative 360th power to the 110,000th power. So if evolution did occur on this planet, it was literally a miracle and therefore evidence for the existence of God. I don't think this is an argument for atheism. Quite the contrary. It really provides good grounds for thinking that God superintended the process of biological development. So the Christian can be open to the evidence to follow it where it leads. So in one sense, you've got to feel a little sorry for the atheist. He can't really follow the evidence where it leads. His presuppositions determine the outcome. By contrast, if there is a fine-tuner and creator of the universe, then already in the initial conditions of the Big Bang, you have an elaborately designed universe that permits the evolution and existence of intelligent life. Dr. Craig, your arguments are very interesting, compelling, in many ways unique. Um, Some in our audience may have heard some of this kind of uh, argument against atheism, but maybe really haven't heard it in the way you have presented as a philosopher. So I commend you for that. Well, let's stop here for a quick second for a commercial break. We're going to come right back with the idea that you don't need faith. You have science on your mind. If you're a Christian and you're on that journey of trying to understand your own religious beliefs, understand you don't have to accept it on blind faith because you have the facts, you have the science on your side. You don't need faith is the message that we want to send today. The Docs for Patient Care Foundation is your way to join the fight and become a member of an organization created by doctors for patients dedicated to fighting for your health care freedom and preserving the doctor-patient relationship. Get a pen and paper. Write down www.docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. That's www.docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. Go to our site and please make a generous tax-deductible donation and join the fight today. Thank you. If you want the truth about politics, medicine, weapons, classic cars, and more, you'll want to tune in to America's Web Radio. You can listen to all of your favorite shows live at www.americaswebradio.com or on demand on iTunes, Spotify, or your favorite podcast app. That's www.americaswebradio.com. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Welcome back to America's Web Radio. Today we're talking about a very fundamental question that every human being ought to ask themselves. Does God exist? Why does anything exist? And the premise of today's presentation with Dr. William Lane Craig is that you just don't have to believe without any facts or support on your side. You just don't have to say, well, I just believe because I believe. In fact, this whole presentation today is to give you a full understanding that it is not just based on faith, but on reality, on science, on proof, on observations. So, Professor, let's start back on this discussion about why God exists and why theology may be the best answer to prove that a God, a divine designer of this universe, a God, a divine designer of human beings, actually does exist. Let's turn to my second main contention, that there are good arguments that theism is true. Number one, 
the cosmological argument. The question of why anything at all exists is the most profound question of philosophy. No question is more sublime than why there is a universe, why there is anything rather than nothing. Well, Doctor, that's an interesting start. Talking about a cosmological reason, I don't think I personally ever heard anybody really put it in those terms. So what would an atheist say? Let's start there. What would an atheist say about the cosmological um, defense of atheism? Typically, atheists have answered this question by saying that the universe is just eternal and uncaused. Okay, the universe has always existed. That sounds like maybe a potential good premise. How do you counter that by saying that a God exists that created the universe? But there are good reasons, both philosophically and scientifically, to think that the universe began to exist. This conclusion has been confirmed by remarkable discoveries in astronomy and astrophysics. In one of the most startling developments of modern science, we now have pretty strong evidence that the universe is not eternal in the past, but had an absolute beginning about 13 billion years ago in a cataclysmic event known as the Big Bang. What makes the Big Bang so startling is that it represents the origin of the universe from literally nothing. For all matter and energy, even physical space and time themselves, came into being at the Big Bang. The coming into being of the universe, as discussed in modern science, literally the coming into being of all physical things from nothing. So, Doctor, now we have the Big Bang Theory, a scientific reality, or at least a very strong scientific theory as to how the world created. So, if you're saying that that actually supports the idea of theism and some grand designer, how would an atheist look at the Big Bang Theory uh, to support their position? Now, this puts the atheist in a very awkward position. A proponent of the Big Bang Theory, at least if he is an atheist, must believe that the universe came from nothing and by nothing. But surely that doesn't make sense. Out of nothing, nothing comes. So why does the universe exist instead of just nothing? Where did it come from? There must have been a cause which brought the universe into being. So, Dr. Craig, can you describe... That cause, because I think ultimately you're going to say that that is an act of the God that you're proposing through a philosophy of theism, that some superpower had to be creating this Big Bang with a design. But tell us in your words uh, what this cause would look like and what the characteristics might be. Now, as the cause of space and time, this being must be an uncaused, timeless, spaceless, immaterial being of unfathomable power. Moreover, it must be personal as well. Why? Because the cause must be beyond space and time. Therefore, it cannot be physical or material. Now, there are only two kinds of things that fit that description. Either an abstract object, like numbers, or else a personal mind. 
But abstract objects can't cause anything. Therefore, it follows that the cause of the universe is a transcendent, intelligent mind. Thus, the cosmological argument gives us a personal creator of the universe. Dr. Frey, that's a pretty impressive analysis of science and how it can relate to a God creating the world and the universe and ties in what many might think um, that science and uh, theology uh, conflict, but clearly they don't under your approach of following the philosophy of the origins of the world using current science and uh, cosmology. Now, I know there's a second area that you frequently talk about, and that's a term that I wasn't familiar with and maybe many others weren't. It's called teleological. And teleological for our audience is sort of an explanation of things that happen in terms of the purpose for which they serve. In other words, now we're not talking about how or why the world was created, but why the world or the universe uh, even exists. What's the purpose of it? And that's considered to be a theological explanation of atheism or theism. So let me hear your perspective on teleological and how it proves the existence of God. Two, the teleological argument. In recent decades, scientists have been stunned by the discovery that the initial conditions of the Big Bang were fine-tuned for the existence of intelligent life with a precision and delicacy that literally defy human comprehension. Now, all of these constants and quantities fall into an extraordinarily narrow range of life-permitting values. Were these constants or quantities to be altered by less than a hair's breadth, the balance would be destroyed and life would not exist. Okay, doctor, so the world as it exists to produce life Forget about the creation. We've already talked about the creator and the power and the need and the cosmological argument for how the world was created with the Big Bang. Now we're talking about the purpose of that creation. And you're saying that the purpose of the creation can be seen to some degree in the very delicate balance of what was created in the world that allowed life to actually exist and flourish. But couldn't there be other reasons after this Big Bang was created for the purpose or how it was developed as um, this fine-tuning or these unusual circumstances that allowed life to exist? Now, there are three possible explanations of this remarkable fine-tuning. Physical necessity, chance, or design. Now, it can't be due to physical necessity. In fact, string theory predicts that there are around 10 to the 500th power different possible universes consistent with nature's laws. So could the fine-tuning be due to chance? 
Well, the problem with this alternative is that the odds against the fine tunings occurring by accident are so incomprehensibly great that they cannot be reasonably faced. We now know that life-prohibiting universes are vastly more probable than any life-permitting universe. So if the universe were the product of chance, the odds are overwhelming that it would be life-prohibiting. Doctor, what would you say to those who say, well, we we actually have an infinite number of universes, so our universe is infinite, and if there's an infinite number of universes, surely life would exist out there somewhere. What's your answer to that theory? In order to rescue the alternative of chance, its proponents have therefore been forced to resort to a radical metaphysical hypothesis, namely that there exists an infinite number of randomly ordered, undetectable universes composing a sort of world ensemble or multiverse of which our universe is but a part. Now, wholly apart from the fact that there's no independent evidence that such a world ensemble even exists, the hypothesis faces a devastating objection. Since we do not have such observations, that fact strongly disconfirms the multiverse hypothesis. On atheism, at least, then, it is highly probable that there is no world ensemble. Okay, Dr. Craig, I guess you've knocked out the physical necessity and chance as the reason that this world, this universe was created. So I guess the third point that you're going to make is that there has to be intelligent design behind it. So give us that final uh, third reason for the existence of the universe. The fine-tuning of the universe is therefore plausibly due neither to physical necessity nor to chance It therefore follows logically that the best explanation is design. Thus, the teleological argument gives us an intelligent designer of the cosmos. Okay, Dr. Craig, I think I'm following along your first two arguments for the existence of a higher being that both created the world and created it for a purpose. Now, We haven't got much more time in this segment, so I want to carry it over to the next one. But I understand you've got a third argument around morality, that we were created by by the superpower, this God. So the theism stands. We were designed by that God for a purpose. This universe was designed for a purpose for the living beings that we are to glorify him is what the Bible would say. But there's also this third item that needs to be discussed now around that a God exists to create the basis for morality so we have some absolute truths. So give us that third item, if you would, please. Three, the moral argument. If God does not exist, then objective moral values do not exist. The position of the modern evolutionist is that morality is a biological adaptation. I appreciate that when somebody says, love thy neighbor as thyself, they think they are referring above and beyond themselves. Nevertheless, such reference is truly without foundation. Morality is just an aid to survival and reproduction, and any deeper meaning is illusory. 
Dr. Prade, I'm just personally blown away with your arguments that are based on facts and science and logic. But let's take a quick break because I want to come back and I want to spend more time going through this whole idea that you don't need faith, just rely on science and observations, history, uh, proven facts that we know about the existence of God and ultimately about the existence of Jesus Christ as God in human form who came to earth to save us all. Hey folks, this is Victor with the On Point with Victor show. Make sure you listen every Tuesday 1 to 2, only right here on America's Web Radio, the On Point with Victor show. Remember folks, I'm not angry, I'm just right. And you can find out why every Tuesday from 1 to 2, the On Point with Victor show, only right here on America's Web Radio. The Docs for Patient Care Foundation is your way to join the fight and become a member of an organization created by doctors for patients dedicated to fighting for your health care freedom and preserving the doctor-patient relationship. Get a pen and paper. Write down www.docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. That's www.docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. Go to our site and please make a generous tax-deductible donation and join the fight today. Thank you. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Welcome back to the third segment of America's Web Radio, and you're listening to Healthcare Insight. Today we're talking to a scholar, a Ph.D. in philosophy and a doctor of religion, uh, Mr. William Lane Craig, and he is giving us a terrific overview of the reasons and for the existence of God. And we're down in this segment to talking about one of the key pillars of his proof of the existence of God, or at least his proof that there is no better answer than that God exists. And one of those is the moral argument. How do we even have morals? How do we know what right for wrong is? And the value of having a God is that there are absolutes. So Let's hear his explanation of the differences in the interpretation of why we have moral values, why even atheists think that there is certain things that are good and certain things that are are bad in, in life. And so let's listen to the difference in those two perspectives as to why we even know or have any perspective on good and evil. I just don't see any reason to think that in the absence of God, the morality which has emerged among these imperfectly evolved primates we call homo sapiens is objective. Hitchens seems to agree with me. He says moral values are just innate predispositions ingrained into us by evolution. Such predispositions, he says, are inevitable for any animal endowed with social instincts. On the atheistic view, then, an action like rape is not socially advantageous and so in the course of human development has become taboo. But that does absolutely nothing to prove that rape is really morally wrong. On the atheistic view, there's nothing really wrong with raping someone. But the problem is that objective values do exist and deep down we all know it. In moral experience, we apprehend a realm of objective moral goods and evils. Actions like rape, cruelty, and child abuse aren't just socially unacceptable behavior. They're moral abominations. Some things, at least, are really wrong. Similarly, love, equality, and self-sacrifice are really good. 
But then it follows logically and necessarily that God exists. Well, Doctor, that was um, an interesting explanation of um, the reason why we have moral values, or at least the the value of moral values within a uh, uh, theistic um, um, perspective. Now, you've talked about the cosmological reasons for a God. You've talked about the tetalogical reasons for a God. You've now talked about the moral reasons for a God. Uh, can you get into maybe the more religious aspect? I think it's your fourth item, and that is talking about um, Jesus Christ and his time on earth and how that is an additional proof, of maybe a more tangible proof to many people that um, Jesus was on earth, he was here as a son of God, and with what he did on earth uh, proves that there must be a God or Jesus wouldn't have existed uh, let alone uh, resurrected, or many of the other things that were firsthand knowledge of people at the time that we know are facts and truth. So tell us about the fourth item in your list of reasons why God must exist. Number four, the resurrection of Jesus. The historical person, Jesus of Nazareth, was a remarkable individual. Historians have reached something of a consensus that the historical Jesus came on the scene with an unprecedented sense of divine authority, the authority to stand and speak in God's place. He claimed that in himself the kingdom of God had come. And as visible demonstrations of this fact, he carried out a ministry of miracle working and exorcisms. But the supreme confirmation of his claim was his resurrection from the dead. If Jesus did rise from the dead, then it would seem that we have a divine miracle on our hands and thus evidence for the existence of God. Doctor, I couldn't agree personally more with you that uh, the resurrection is the real key. And, you know, most of the people listening to this program who are Christians would would recognize that and celebrate Easter, but we really don't think about the reality, the scientific, the observational, the historical reality of that risen Christ. Can you speak to that issue? Because I know you're not trying to make this a purely faith-based assumption that God exists, but using the science and the observation and the history around the resurrection would be helpful for those who, of us who like to argue maybe with non-believers or try to um, support our own belief in Christ, that there's more than just a faith-based uh, understanding of the resurrection of Christ. Now, most people probably think that the resurrection of Jesus is something you just believe in by faith or not. But there are actually three established facts recognized by the majority of New Testament historians today, which I believe are best explained by the resurrection of Jesus. Fact number one, on the Sunday after his crucifixion, Jesus' tomb was discovered empty by a group of his women followers. According to Jakob Kramer, an Austrian specialist, by far most scholars hold firmly to the reliability of the biblical statements about the empty tomb. Fact number two, on separate occasions, different individuals and groups experienced appearances of Jesus alive after his death. According to the prominent New Testament critic Gerhard Ludemann, it may be taken as historically certain that the disciples had experiences after Jesus' death 
in which Jesus appeared to them as the risen Christ. These appearances were witnessed not only by believers, but also by unbelievers, skeptics, and even enemies. Fact number three, the original disciples suddenly came to believe in the resurrection of Jesus, despite having every predisposition to the contrary. Jews had no belief in a dying, much less rising, Messiah. And Jewish beliefs about the afterlife prohibited anyone's rising from the dead before the resurrection at the end of the world. Nevertheless, the original disciples came to believe so strongly that God had raised Jesus from the dead that they were willing to die for the truth of that belief. Dr. Craig, those are pretty powerful arguments to support the idea of a God through the resurrection of Jesus Christ and the observations of his disciples and friends and and even enemies and skeptics. Um, Today's historians, um, put that in some perspective. Are there any historians that sort of accept all of that uh, as a historical truth and that, um, you know, you can quote us some names or some identities of people who have also looked at it that may themselves be today skeptics that would accept uh, this version of the resurrection. N.T. Wright, an eminent New Testament scholar, concludes, that is why, as a historian, I cannot explain the rise of early Christianity unless Jesus rose again, leaving an empty tomb behind him. Attempts to explain away these three great facts, like the disciples stole the body or Jesus wasn't really dead, have been universally rejected by contemporary scholarship. The simple fact is that there just is no plausible naturalistic explanation of these facts. And therefore, it seems to me the Christian is amply justified in believing that Jesus rose from the dead and was who he claimed to be. But that entails that God exists. Okay, Doctor, you've laid out four reasons for the existence of God. If I can recall them, they are the the cosmological, that somebody had to create the universe since it exists. Something has to create something that exists. Uh, A purpose uh, for the creation, the moral argument, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. What is the fifth item in this um, listing of reasons of why God must exist? Finally, number five, the immediate experience of God. This isn't really an argument for God's existence. Rather, it's the claim that you can know that God exists wholly apart from arguments, simply by immediately experiencing him. Philosophers call beliefs like this properly basic beliefs. They aren't based on other beliefs. Rather, they're part of the foundation of a person's system of beliefs. Other properly basic beliefs include the belief in the reality of the external world, uh, the belief in the existence of the past and the presence of other minds like your own. When you think about it, none of these beliefs can be proved. But although these sorts of beliefs are basic for us, that doesn't mean they're arbitrary. Rather, they're grounded in the sense that they're formed in the context of certain experiences. In the experiential context of seeing and hearing and feeling things, I naturally form the belief in a world of physical objects. And thus, my beliefs are not arbitrary, but appropriately grounded in experience. They're not merely basic, but properly basic. In the same way, belief in God is, for those who know him, a properly basic belief grounded in our experience of God. 
Doctor, let me jump in here for a second because this really touches me. This is where my faith is grounded in the experiential. And I think for many people, especially those who have gone through some tragedy in their life and have found solace in uh, the belief in God, and then the way things turned around when they asked for help and support, that God is always there. We just need to be able to reach out and ask him for help and if you do believe in him, and sometimes even if you're questioning yourself at times about your belief, that he will help you if you are sincere in that request. So this uh, experiential part is very important to me, but um, how do you view this experiential part relative to the other external items that you described in reasons uh one through four for the existence of God. Now, if this is right, there's a danger that arguments for God's existence could actually distract your attention from God himself. If you're sincerely seeking God, then God will make his existence evident to you. We mustn't so concentrate on the external arguments that we fail to hear the inner voice of God speaking to our own hearts. For those who listen, God becomes an immediate reality in their lives. Dr. Craig, could you then just sort of summarize what you've been teaching us uh, so far during this hour? Um, and what if somebody uh, wants to uh, argue against, debate against these uh, points that you've made? What is your, your feeling about what they would need to do? So, in conclusion then, we've seen five good arguments to think that God exists. If it wants us to believe instead that God does not exist... Then he must first tear down all five of the arguments that I presented and then in their place erect a case of his own to prove that God does not exist. Unless and until he does that, I think that theism is the more plausible worldview. Doctor, this is a lot to absorb. Let's take a quick break and I want to come back with some very specific questions that a non-believer or a questioning Christian might be asking themselves after hearing your presentation. So, audience, if you'll just stay with us for our last segment, I think you will learn a lot about the inside details and explanations in a little bit more layman's terms as to what Dr. Craig has been uh, telling us so far. We'll be right back. Veteran-owned, America's Web Radio would like to thank all of our incredible patrons. We wouldn't be able to do this without you. If you are not already a patron, you can help us continue to produce some of the most informative and entertaining shows on the Internet by becoming a patron. Patrons of America's Web Radio are the first to receive information about new shows and links to the latest podcast episodes. Join now and receive a free gift while supplies last. For more information and to join our family, please visit www.patreon.com slash America's Web Radio. If you have questions, contact us at gm at America's Web And as always, thank you for listening. The Docs for Patient Care Foundation is your way to join the fight and become a member of an organization created by doctors for patients dedicated to fighting for your health care freedom and preserving the doctor-patient relationship. Get a pen and paper. Write down www.docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. That's www.docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. Go to our site and please make a generous tax-deductible donation and join the fight today. Thank you. 
If you love classic cars, you're gonna wanna listen to the Classic Car Show with Tom Cox and Richard Lentinello on America's Web Radio. Live every Saturday at 9 a.m. Eastern at americaswebradio.com or on demand on your favorite podcast app. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the americasbroadcastnetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Welcome back, audience, to our fourth and final session of this fascinating presentation by Dr. William Lane Craig on his proof, his series of scientific, philosophical, experiential reasons for the existence of God. So if you've been searching for arguments, for explanations, for your own self-interest as to can I prove that God exists or that that God is the most logical reason for so many things that occur around us or our feelings or our history, instead of coming at it from a religious standpoint of saying, well, you just got to have faith, uh, Dr. Craig actually gives us good reasons as believers to solidify our ability to state positively that God does exist. And so I want to ask a series of questions to him now that might clarify some areas that come up as you've been listening uh, this hour. And the first one is, uh, if there is evil in the world, but God is good, how does evil generate itself? Um, If God doesn't generate evil, then where does evil come from, and how do we have evil in this world around us? Uh, Dr. Craig? Yes, I see the origin of evil in a disorder in the free will of creatures. God has created creatures with a free will, uh, angels and humans. And these wills are properly oriented toward God as the supreme good. When creatures use their free will to direct them toward other goods rather than toward God as the ultimate good, this is a disorder in the creaturely will and is the origin of evil. Evil isn't a thing that exists and needs to be created by God. It's a privation of something. And to illustrate, think in physics, um, cold is a privation of heat. There isn't anything called cold. Rather, it's an absence of heat. Now, that doesn't mean, obviously, that cold is illusory. If you go outside on a winter's day, you can feel how real this privation is. But it's not a positive reality that would need to be created by God. And in exactly the same way, evil doesn't have any positive ontological status. It's a privation of right order in the creaturely will that is due to freedom. So, Dr. Craig, for those in this listening audience who may have family members or friends who are atheists or agnostic or just don't have a belief system at the moment, how do you suggest we best engage them so that they start to think about not just where they might reject a religious discussion directly, but that we might engage them in this idea of of philosophy and science and logic and deductive reasoning to show that there is a, a God. And then once they accept the idea of God, then use the resurrection to show the 
value and the importance of Jesus Christ in their life to reach that God as well, but at least to engage them in a discussion of the existence of God. What What's your suggestion on how we can all best do that? I would encourage every Christian to have a list of arguments memorized that he can share with an unbeliever. The typical unbeliever, in my experience, has no good reason for his unbelief. He's simply been taught to repeat the slogan, there's no good evidence for God's existence. And this is really, I think, a mask for intellectual laziness on his part. But it serves very effectively as a conversation stopper because the average Christian doesn't have any good evidence for God's existence. And so this, in effect, uh, gives the atheist the trump card. There's no evidence for God's existence, and that's the end of the conversation. But if you will have a list of arguments memorized at that point, what you can do is say to the unbeliever with a surprised look on your face, well, is that what you think? Why, I can think of at least five arguments for God's existence. And at that point, he's got to say, yeah, like what? And then you're off and running. But, Doctor, that's a great suggestion for us to all have a memorized list. Can you tell us what your list is? If somebody asks you that same question and says, I just don't believe, and you say, but there are reasons, let me explain them. What do you, what do you say? I typically just list about five arguments. I'll say, God is the best explanation for why anything at all exists, rather than nothing. God is the best explanation of the beginning of the universe. God is the best explanation of the fine-tuning of the universe for intelligent life. God is the best explanation of objective moral values and duties in the world. God is the best explanation of the historical facts concerning Jesus of Nazareth. And finally, God can be personally known and experienced. So, Dr. Craig, what's your experience when you just list them out that way? We can all sort of memorize those those items that you just went through, but... Um, when you do that, what's sort of the response so we can at least be prepared for what typically uh, occurs when that list is sort of thrown out there? I find that many times just giving a list of the arguments is enough to satisfy the unbeliever. He doesn't even ask to hear the arguments. Just hearing a list of them is often enough. So I would encourage all of us to have such a list memorized that you can just share at the drop of a hat with an unbeliever. Okay, for those of us who aren't quite as schooled in the philosophy and theology, what if they want more details? How do we deal with that? Now, if he does want to press you, each one of those points in the list has an argument that has premises or steps that you can memorize and again, then share with them. For example, the argument uh, that God is the best explanation for the beginning of the universe is very easy to memorize. It has just three steps. Whatever begins to exist has a cause. The universe began to exist. Therefore, the universe has a cause. And that will show that we don't live in an isolated system, that there is a transcendent cause beyond space and time, beyond the universe that has brought the universe into being, which has obvious theological implications. So if you have these 
premises memorized, then you are prepared to actually share the argument with the unbeliever. But in many cases, you won't even need to do that if you just have a list. Dr. Craig, my next question kind of changes direction a little bit. Uh, In this world, we're seeing a dramatic growth in the Muslim religion. And even in the United States, a lot of conversions, especially in the minority community from Christianity or from uh, an agnostic or not believing much, uh, are going to the Muslim uh, faith. How do we share, best share, our faith in Christianity with this growing uh, Muslim population? In sharing our faith with Muslims, I think that the key is to focus on Jesus of Nazareth, his identity and his claims. Don't criticize Muhammad. Don't get their backs up by attacking their prophet. Focus on Jesus. It is who Jesus was and what he claimed that divides Islam fundamentally from Christianity. I mean, the one indisputable fact about Jesus of Nazareth that is recognized by every historical scholar is that Jesus died by crucifixion at the hands of the Romans. And yet, this is the one historical fact about Jesus that the Quran denies. The Muslim does not believe that Jesus was crucified. In the Quran, it says they did not kill him, neither did they crucify him. But it was only made to appear to them so. And then also, you've got the evidence for the crucifixion and the resurrection. And I think this presents a very, very powerful case for thinking that the Christian view of Jesus is correct in contrast to the Muslim view. And it puts the focus where it should be. It puts the focus on Jesus. Dr. Craig, let me wrap up this whole hour with uh, maybe one of the most important questions that Christians um, maybe don't have the best answer for. And that is, if you believe that salvation is only through Jesus Christ, What about the people who have never heard of Christ, did not get a chance uh, to follow him, have never been exposed to Christian beliefs? Uh, Are they doomed forever to hell? Um, What kind of religion would do that? So how how about people in the Old Testament that lived before Christ? Um, What about their salvation? So, It's a very important question that many people reject Christianity because uh, Christians for themselves say we can only be saved through Jesus Christ. But what if um, others uh, never get a chance to even hear about him or be exposed to the ideas of Christianity? I think that the Bible indicates that God judges people on the basis of the information that they have. He judges them on the basis of the light that they have. Um so that those who have never heard of Christ will not be judged on the basis of whether they've placed their faith in Christ. That would be manifestly unfair. They've never heard of Jesus, so how could they place their faith in him? Rather, Paul says in Romans 1 and 2 that they will be judged on the basis of how they've responded to God's general revelation in nature and in conscience. Paul says, in nature, all men at any time in history, any place in the world, can know that there is an eternal and powerful deity 
who has created the world. And in chapter 2, he says that God's moral law is written on the hearts of all people, even those who do not have the Old Testament law, so that we do by nature what the law requires. We have an instinctual grasp of right and wrong. And so those who have never heard the gospel will be judged on the basis of their response to God's general revelation in nature and conscience. Does that mean that people can die without the benefits of Christ and his um, giving of his blood on the cross? Now, that does not mean that someone can be saved apart from the work of Christ. What it would mean is that the benefits of Christ's death could be applied to someone without his conscious knowledge of Christ. If he were to look out at the world and say, I know there's a God who's created all this, look in at his own heart and say, I I don't live up to the demands of God's moral law, and he flings himself on the mercy of this God, uh, asking for forgiveness and pleading for mercy and grace, um, that person would be saved by grace through the blood of Christ, even if he had no knowledge of Christ. He would be like people in the Old Testament who had no conscious knowledge of Christ at all, but they responded to the light that they had and were judged by their response to that light. Well, audience, I hope you appreciate the words of wisdom from Dr. William Lane Craig. If you want to hear more, there are a number of YouTube presentations of his ideas and his, his thoughts that can refresh um, what you're hearing and get into even more depth uh, than what you've heard in this uh, presentation today. In addition, there are a number of books that he um, offers up and um, a website that can give you even more insight. So thank you all for listening through this. I hope you've learned a lot about your own faith. I hope you've learned a lot about how you might be able to approach people uh, who are non-believers or of other faith. Please join us again next week on America's Web Radio. This is Ron Bachman signing off for this week. We'll see you again next week. Thank you. The views, opinions, and content of the show hosts and their guests appearing on America's Web Radio are their own and do not necessarily reflect those of the station. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening.